We are in Hebrews chapter 7, and as the author of Hebrews continues his, his major argument that Christ is better than uh, everything that the law of Moses points towards, uh, because he is the fulfillment of those things, those are our shadows, and Christ is the substance, uh, we're in the middle of his, uh, his argument proper uh, on Melchizedek. Uh, if you look back at chapter 5, you'll remember, uh, look at like verse 5, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, and then he quotes Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, 110 especially making reference to Melchizedek. So we're going to come back to that reference here in a few minutes. Uh, and he just starts to introduce Melchizedek there in verse 10, and, uh, and then he takes a break, uh, sort of a parenthetical uh, section that we covered over the last few weeks, uh, one of the warning passages, probably the best known of the warning passages. Then last time we looked at uh, Hebrews 7 uh, and through verse 10, 1 through 10 in chapter 7, uh, which is where he comes back to his argument about Melchizedek, and uh, we're going to pick up this morning in verse 11, chapter 7, verse 11. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the author of Hebrews and for the truth that we find here in Hebrews. We thank you for Christ, who is our perfect high priest. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, uh, the, the author of Hebrews, it, it's been true prior to this, but I, I find that in these verses, uh, his, his logic just becomes very tight uh, he's, uh, he's making a very clear argument. He's not only asserting things, but he's sort of pulling the veil back a bit uh, to show you the, the, the thought process that brings him to these assertions. He's defending the assertions. And, uh, and so not only that, but there's a, a beauty to the truth that he's expressing here. And so take a look at Hebrews 7 verse 11. Uh, now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So, remember here uh, the, the point of appealing to the Melchizedek priesthood is to, to point out that there's more than one kind of priesthood in God's redemptive economy. And the author of Hebrews is not, he's actually not going back to Genesis and saying, oh look, there's this Melchizedek guy. That, that looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus must be a priest after this order, Melchizedek. That's not what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's actually got the revelation of God teaching him. And I don't mean in his own inspiration here. I mean in the Psalms. That's why, look at what we just read. He says, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Where does he get the idea that there was a need for another priest in the order of Melchizedek? He gets it from Psalm 110. And that's why he, he says that this comes after the giving of the law. Later than the giving of the law, the Old Testament tells us we need a priest 
in the order of Melchizedek. And of course, he's, he's referring to Psalm 110, which he quoted back in chapter 5, verse 6. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, he's going to quote it again in chapter 7, verse 17. And, uh, and from that same passage again in chapter 7, verse 21. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's, he's taking both of these Old Testament passages. He's taking the passage that refers to Melchizedek in the narrative when he met with Abraham, but then he's taking Psalm 110, where much later, after the giving of the law, why the giving of the law? Why does that matter? Uh, because remember, the audience of this book is tempted to go back to the Mosaic law as the way of living, and the Mosaic law gives a priesthood. That's the priesthood they want to go back to. It's what we call the, the priesthood of Aaron or the Aaronic priesthood. That's what they want to go back to. The author of Hebrews says, you know, since the giving of that law, a better priest has been promised. What was the point, the author of Hebrews is asking, of telling us we need a priest after the order of Melchizedek if the order of Aaron was sufficient? It must not have been sufficient we must need a greater priest. Verse 11, again, now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that Aaronic priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Implied, but Psalm 110 tells us another priesthood was required rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. I, that, the, the brilliance of that argument astounds me. Uh, I love that he's drawing this out. Uh, the priesthood and the law which gives the priesthood are inseparable. They go together. And if there is another priesthood, it cannot be a part of the law of Moses. It must come from outside of the Mosaic covenant. And since it comes from outside and it comes later, it argues against any attempt to go back to that law of Moses. His whole argument here is going to, to culminate in this. The law of Moses is dead. The covenant with Moses is finished. It's not that it has no value. We can still go back to it and see in it Christ. We can still go back to it, and inasmuch as it, it in, encapsulated the moral law, we're able to see that moral law and understand the character of God. There's value and usefulness to it, but not as a covenant. We do not belong to this covenant. We are not under the terms of this covenant. And if you as a people want to go back to that covenant, you must necessarily abandon the covenant God has for you now. You cannot have them both. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that's Christ, belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Right? Christ is our priest, but he cannot be a priest in the Mosaic Covenant. He's from the tribe of Judah. The priests of the Mosaic Covenant come from the tribe of Levi. He is not permitted to serve as a Levitical priest. He's not qualified. That, that might lead us to despair, except for the fact that there's a greater priesthood anyways, and he is eminently qualified for that priesthood. This becomes even more evident, he says in verse 15, when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, 
He's making a specific reference here. What reference? Psalm 110, as fulfilled by Jesus Christ. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. That's how it worked with Levi. You had to be descended physically from Levi to be qualified as a priest. That's not how this priesthood works. This priesthood works by the power of an indestructible life. Christ is uniquely qualified for this priesthood. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. He's talking about Moses. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. He, let, me, let me say this another way. He's saying to the audience, Christian, you who are tempted to go back to Moses, you cannot go back. God has taken it from you, but only to give you something better. You don't need to go back. He's given you something better. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. It's taken from you. You no longer have Moses. Why? Because it was weak and useless. Useless, that is, in order to bring you to salvation to perfect you. But on the other hand, in other words, he's taken something from you, but on the other hand, he's given you something. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. It's, it's not really a complicated argument, right? He's making a very straightforward argument. You want Moses. You want Aaron. But what you want is weak and useless and has been taken from you by God in order that he might give you a better covenant, a better Moses, a better Aaron. He gives you Jesus Christ, the great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. And why is it better? It's better, for starters, because he didn't just inherit it because he was born to somebody. He's appointed to it by God. It's better because the Melchizedekian priesthood is itself greater than the priesthood that was made under Moses. This priesthood has the power of an indestructible life. This priesthood offers a better hope. It draws us near to God. There's an oath made. So Christ is not only qualified to be such a high priest, he's not only said to be such a high priest, but he is appointed as a high priest, and his appointment is forever on the, the word of the Lord himself, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And so this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. You don't want to go back to the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is finished. The good news is there's a better covenant. There's not just another covenant. There's a better covenant in Jesus Christ. He's going to go on to, to continue unpacking 
this logic. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. This is another example of why the Melchizedek priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. Remember when he introduced Melchizedek and he did this, this little exegetical thing where he said Melchizedek lives forever. He didn't have any parents. We don't have his birth. He doesn't die. He's forever. That's not true of the Levitical priesthood. Aaron died. Aaron's sons died. Very unfortunate case of judgment. All of the priests, no matter how good or bad they were under Aaron, died. That's the nature of that priesthood. The nature of this priesthood of Melchizedek is that these priests do not die. You need a lot of priests in the the Mosaic system. They were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. This is part of a theme that we we get in the Old Testament. Uh, you've, You've heard us talk about it before, that Christ, there's three offices in Scripture in particular that point to Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And these offices in the Old Testament are intended by God for the good of his people. But the ones who fill these offices in the Old Testament are themselves sinners under judgment. They are themselves sinners subject to death. They are not perfect in fulfilling their office, and no matter how good they are in fulfilling their office, they eventually die. And so you get this pattern in Judges, one example, right? Judges has a a very consistent pattern throughout the book where uh, the people sin and God sends uh, a foreign people against them as a discipline against them. Uh, The people suffer under that discipline until they cry out to God and he raises up a deliverer who delivers them from not only from that, that discipline, but the people live faithfully as long as that judge is alive but every cycle ends and that judge lived this many years and died and the people went back to their sin and you can't help but read judges and think to yourself if a judge had come who wasn't subject to death they would have been obedient forever it's the same pattern with the kings you get uh you know saul and David and Solomon and the kingdoms divided and you get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom never has a good king. It's not an overstatement. There's never a single righteous, godly king in the northern kingdom. All of them are wicked and in 722, finally they're, they're carted off. The northern kingdom is destroyed by Assyria. The southern kingdom is kind of hot and cold. They, they, they've got their good kings who worship God and lead the people in righteousness, uh, and they've got their, their fallen kings uh, who lead the people in idolatry. But nonetheless, as you read especially the narrative of Judah, the southern kingdom, you find yourself thinking, if Josiah had just not died, if Josiah had just kept living, perhaps Judah would have never fallen again into sin and idolatry. You find yourself wishing in the narrative a king would come who would lead in righteousness and never die. All right? And you, you see these patterns over and over. It's true of the priesthood as well. 
Even if there's a good high priest, they always die. What we need is a high priest who is not subject to death. And that's what we get. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That's, that's priestly language. Draw near to God through him. That's what a priest does. A priest is an intermediary between God and man since he always lives to make intercession for them. The one who makes intercession for us, he's not going to die. There's no point coming in the future where where he will cease to make intercession because it was his turn to move on to the great beyond, right? No, he will never die. He makes intercession for us forever. Again, it's always helpful in Hebrews to keep reminding yourself why he's making the argument why would you go back to the Levitical priesthood where the priests are sinners and subject to death themselves? There is now, he's not speaking metaphorically, he's not even speaking of a future hope. The author of Hebrews is talking about the present. There is now a great high priest who is not subject to death, and he's a greater high priest than Levi, uh, than, than the Levitical priesthood, Aaron and his offspring, He makes intercession for us, and he will never fail, never cease to make that intercession. We didn't come into this great high priest because he happened to be born into it, but he was appointed by God. And having been appointed by God, he is therefore God's high priest. This is the one God has appointed. Why would you go to another? And if God has appointed him, then his ministry will be effective. Right? All of these implications belong to this argument that the author of Hebrews is making, that Christ is our great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, We'll probably finish chapter 7, and we've got enough time. I'm going to pause. Questions, comments, observations? Yeah, David. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't hesitate, and you guys know from our ministry here uh, that, that we believe that all Scripture is useful for correction, etc., right? Paul says to Timothy. And so, uh, you know, there's certainly a usefulness for it, but yeah, what is that use? And I think, I think there's two uses in particular. Uh, one is uh, that the the Mosaic Covenant does contain the moral law. The moral law is eternal. It existed before Moses and the Mosaic Covenant, and it exists today. And it will, in fact, continue forever. The moral law is an expression of God's own character, and God does not change, therefore the moral law does not change. Uh, I think one of the things that, that we trip up on when it comes to the law and the Mosaic Covenant, and what makes people a little nervous when you say the Mosaic Covenant's defunct, right, is, is that it sounds like you're saying, for example, the Ten Commandments are no longer in effect. But we're not saying that. The Ten Commandments are moral law. That was law before God gave the Mosaic Covenant. Their law, now that the Mosaic Covenant is defunct. So we're not saying 
that you take all of the truth contained in the Mosaic Covenant and that truth ceases to be true anymore. What we're saying is that the covenant is an administration of God's redemptive work in the world. That particular administration served a purpose, and having served its purpose, it goes away. But inasmuch as it revealed God's moral law, that moral law is still in effect. So we can go to the Ten Commandments, and not just the Ten Commandments, but anywhere we find the moral law and the law of Moses, we can say, see, this is the law. The other thing that we can do with the Mosaic Covenant is, uh, and this is what we, we love to do, is we can show how it points to Christ, how all of it was meant to point them to Christ, to anticipate Christ. Paul says that the, the Mosaic Covenant was a schoolmaster to an underage people, right? That is that God had not revealed as much about redemptive history to Israel in the Old Testament as he has revealed to us today. That's why he, he refers to Israel in the Old Testament as a people underage. And so God uses the law, the Mosaic Covenant, to instruct as a tutor to a people underage. Uh, we are no longer underage, Paul says. Right, so we no longer have that tutor alone. Uh, we have Christ himself. Uh, but the two continue to work together, Old and New Testament, and our, our instruction, our knowledge. So... This is, this is really important, right? I mean, from an apologetic perspective, you'll get people saying, oh, you guys just pick and choose what you want to enforce from the Bible. The Old Testament says we're supposed to stone homosexuals, but you don't do that anymore, do you? Right? Uh, you know, it also says you're not supposed to mix different kinds of material in your clothing, and you can't plant certain kinds of crops after, you know, other kinds of crops. But you guys don't believe any of that matters anymore. I don't see you out there, you know, moral majority trying to get crops planted in a particular order. Uh, so you guys, you just pick and choose, right? And you, you don't like this over here, so you, you tell us we're not allowed to do that. But you don't care about this over here, so you don't say anything. Uh, that's... That's an argument born out of complete ignorance of God's word. Uh, it, it's just a, a roughshod uh, attempt to try and use the word against the church. How do we answer it, though? Why, why don't we worry about mixing you know, different kinds of material in our clothing and how we plant our crops? Why aren't we out there lobbying to have people stoned if they break the Old Testament law? It's because we understand that the law of Moses is defunct. It, it's no longer in effect, right? The moral law is, but its enforcement is not. Israel in the Old Testament was a theocracy. God was king. And so the, the government under God actually enforced discipline for violating God's law. But that's not the context anymore. We, we don't live in a theocracy as much as some people would like to insist that, uh, that America is, uh, is God's people, right? You know, we're not. Uh, being an American does not make you a Christian. doesn't even make you a better Christian. Uh, it just makes you an American and a Christian. And God doesn't hold against us the fact that we're Americans, right? And so... Uh, this, this is not the, the world in which we live. So, you've heard me talk about it before. The law of Moses, we understand, has three aspects. Uh, there's the civil, the ceremonial, and uh, the um, judicial. Thank you. The civil, the ceremonial, and the judicial. 
uh, well, the civil and the judicial are the same. It's the moral. So the civil or the judicial is that government under God enforcing the law. The ceremonial is the law that says if you belong to this nation, you will worship God and you will worship him this way. And the moral is what underpins all of this. It's the character of God, the perfections of God, right? Inasmuch as we are called to be like God. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Jesus says in the Gospels. That's not new. When Jesus says it, it's not revelatory. It was long known. You're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. How is our Father in heaven perfect? Well, look to the law. But it's not in effect that way anymore. There is no Mosaic covenant, period. Not for us, not for Jewish people. There is no Mosaic covenant. That was God's covenant in the world. It was a temporal covenant, and God has put it away. So it doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's an artifact of history. That's what these people, the author of Hebrews is writing to, that's what they want to go back to. And much like the, the door to the garden being shut in Adam and Eve's faces, the door into the Mosaic Covenant is shut. There is no benefit held out to anyone who will go back to it. In fact, it's not just a lack of benefit. If you insist on turning away from Christ and going back to Moses, you do so to your own condemnation. And you can sense, if you, if you sit down and you read Hebrews all the way through in a sitting, you can sense the perplexity of the author of Hebrews that anybody would want to do this. Not just because of the condemnation that comes upon those who would do it, but because you're leaving perfection for something that he describes as weak and useless. You do that, and in doing it, condemn yourself. And so the author of Hebrews, is, is he's holding it up and saying, don't you see how all of it was meant to point to Christ? Don't you see how Christ fulfills all of these images perfectly? And he never dies. So he's going to not only do it perfectly once, he's going to fulfill these images perfectly forever. Verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That once for all here, so he's, he's just combined two assertions. One, that Christ doesn't sin and therefore doesn't need to make atonement for his own sin, so he's better than the Levitical priests. But also, that when he did make atonement for our sin, he only did it once, as opposed to the priests who have to do it over and over and over again. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came, he's talking about Psalm 110, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So let's, um, let's pause there and maybe not go on today. Yeah, Billy.
there's, there's two ways this has been read uh, by those who, who agree and are committed to the, the authority and the inerrancy of the text. Um, so th these are both perfectly acceptable readings in terms of being orthodox. That, that either he's doing a sort of midrash here where there's a real man in history named Melchizedek. He had a mother and father. He was born. He died. But because Genesis doesn't tell us any of those things, it's, Genesis is intentionally holding him out as though he were eternal in anticipation of how Christ would himself fill that office, right? So a real person who was actually born and died, but that's not what we're given in the text, and the author of Hebrews is playing off of that. Or that, the, that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. That's the other way that, that it's, it's often read. Uh, so that what we read in Genesis is a real event, and one who appeared as a man really showed up and, uh, and blessed Abraham and received tithes from Abraham, uh, but that this person was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, now, that's a perfectly acceptable reading in as much as there are pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, you know, these, these instances where God himself appears in the form of a man. So Abraham's conversation with God before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, God says to himself, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do since I'm going to make him great? Uh, okay, so he tells him. Abraham says, okay, so be patient with me. What if there's 25 righteous people in the city, right? And there's this back and forth between him and God. But Abraham's having a back and forth with somebody standing in front of him who looks like a man. That's what the text says. Uh, there, there are other examples. Joshua, right? When he meets the, uh, the, um, uh, the leader of the army of the Lord, uh, which appears to be an incarnate Christ, uh, Samson's parents, right? Uh, when they, uh, they're, they're visited with respect to Samson's birth. Uh, Gideon, yeah, you've got all these examples. And, and at the very least, we can say in all these cases that it's God. The text seems very clear that it's God who's there in the form of a man. Um, in many, we can make a good argument for it being Christ. Uh, I, I personally hold to all of them being pre-incarnate. Uh, if it's God in the text, it's Christ. It's, it's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And the reason I argue that is the, the evidence we have from Scripture in terms of our theology is that Christ is always our revelation of God. So if God appears to us, it's Christ. It's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, now, there you know, are perfectly orthodox people who aren't willing to go that far. Uh, they say, no, no, it's God, but it's not necessarily Christ uh, in every instance. But that's, that's my, my take on it. So here with Melchizedek, which do we have? Uh, and I, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't believe that we have the evidence to make a determination between the two. Well, this is the problem, is if, if, we, if all we read was the word resembling, then you'd say, yeah, he's a real person. And he just, in his office, appeared uh, to, to be without birth or death. But then when you come up to verse 8, uh, 
let's see, eight. Yeah, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. That seems to go beyond simply we don't have a record of his death. There's a positive testimony that he lives. Um, and he seems to be talking about Melchizedek there when he says this, because that's the one who received the tithes. Um, so again, if we just read that, we might be inclined to say, no, it was Jesus all along. But then we come back to resembling, right? And those aren't the only two points of reference uh, throughout the, the reading here and in Genesis. You know, they're, it's just difficult. To me, it's a little bit like Romans 7, you know, where, where Paul is talking about, uh, you know, the things that I want to do, uh, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do. Uh, he uses language in that passage that we would never have believed was appropriate for a Christian to use about himself. Uh, and then he uses language in that very same passage, all this interwoven, that we would think would never be true of an unbeliever. Uh, and yet Christ is using both about himself all at once. Uh, and so scholars, you know, wrestle and wrestle with Romans 7 and how best to understand those verses. Uh, I, it's, I don't feel like there's as much at stake here, uh, but it's a similar thing. We've got language that would seem to support and rule out each, uh, and it just becomes very difficult. Ultimately, I don't think it matters, right? That's, that's the good news here. Uh, nothing is at stake with respect to the question, was Melchizedek a pre-incarnate uh, revelation of Christ, or was he a real historical man? In either case, he serves the purpose that God intends him to serve uh, in the text. Graham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, literary strategy to indicate that he, you know, it, it seems uh, like uh, Melchizedek actually not dying would make it a much stronger argument. Yeah, the problem is that if he didn't die, though, you'd have Melchizedek and Jesus in the office, right? Um, and I, I think, and I, I, I don't offer this, again, I'm not committed to either view, but I think it would help with the tension you're feeling if you did more reading in like Jewish Midrash, uh, the way that they interpret the text, uh, this, this would be an example, if it's Midrash, this would be an example that I'm most comfortable with, right? There's other examples of Midrash in the New Testament, and I go, oh, that doesn't feel right. Uh, I mean, it is, it's inspired, but Paul especially. Paul will do things like say, it says offspring, singular. That's not how Hebrew works. Paul knows that good and well right? There's not a singular and a plural form of offspring. There's one form. It can be singular or it can be plural. So when Paul says, hey, notice it doesn't say offsprings. It says offspring, singular. You kind of go, Paul, that's, you know, that's not how the grammar works, right? What he's doing, though, is a perfectly acceptable form of interpretation in his context. And if, in fact, the author of Hebrews uh, if Melchizedek's a real human person who actually died, and the author of Hebrews is looking back and recognizing that that death is not recorded, and the effect, the impression it makes is that 
Melchizedek never died, uh, and that is true of Christ, who is the, the perfect high priest in that order, uh, that would be a perfectly acceptable form of interpretation in the first century. And therefore ought to be one now, but we get really uncomfortable with it, right? Okay, what else? Yes, Jim. Yeah, and in fact, we have that in the gospel accounts uh, in two forms. One is the Sermon on the Mount, where effectively that's exactly what Jesus does. He stands up and says, you've heard it said, which almost gives the impression of like a rumor. But then he quotes the law, right? You've heard it said, thou shalt not, I say to you. And so he is, he's going through and he's, he's reinterpreting that Old Testament law. Uh, then you also get just the straight up, you know, the scribes coming to Jesus on the street and saying, so tell us, what would you say if a man died and his wife married his brother to produce offspring? In eternity, which one is her husband, right? So they're, they're trying to get him caught up in interpretive difficulties uh, which Jesus, of course, it's his law, right? He's the one who gave it. He knows it perfectly. And, uh, and so Christ brilliantly answers their questions. Um, but we do, yeah, Christ in his person and his work, uh, he, he, because he fulfills that Old Testament law, uh, there's also a, a greater understanding of, a reinterpretation in some cases of that law from this side of Christ and the cross. Craig? Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, 
again, while we can we can go over it and over it, and you see more and more shades in it, you, you can draw out more and more truth. The argument itself is pretty plain, right? Uh, it's, it's not that complicated an argument. If you know the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, and, uh, and you're, you're hearing from the author of Hebrews here, uh, you, you're tempted to go back to that system and he's tearing that system down and showing you how Christ supplants that system and is better, uh, it's, it's a pretty straightforward argument. Uh, but there's a beauty to it as well, because the, the better part, right, is, is where the beauty is. Uh, that, you know, I said earlier that we, we read the Old Testament wishing that the judges would stop dying wishing that the kings would stop dying, wishing that the prophets would stop dying. And the author of Hebrews is saying, so the one you've been hoping would come and not die, he's here, and he hasn't died. He died, but he's been raised again, and therefore is no longer subject to death. So he'll never die again, right? Uh, And so that one that we've been looking for in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, has come. uh, And he's perfect, and he changes everything. So, okay, we've got five minutes left. Um, question, was Kevin the one you were pointing to? Yes, Kevin. Tell us a bit more about Jesus being the guarantor of the second coming, particularly the guarantor. Yeah, yeah, talk more about him being the guarantor of a better covenant. That's verse 22. The author of Hebrews himself is going to talk about this uh, when he gets over to uh, chapter 9, verse 15. Um, and he talks about how a covenant works, and, uh, and he, he's going to pick up that, uh, that language again. Um, but the, the idea is this, a covenant, we have to go back to answer Kevin's question, we have to go back to the question of what is a covenant and how does it work. Uh, a covenant is a, it, it defines a relationship. That's probably the simplest thing to say. We even use the language today, right? You don't use covenant as much, but you still get like, you know, HOA covenants and things like that. We still use the word this way. And in a sense, it's, it is the same, right? Uh, in structure, that is that there are at least two parties and these two parties have come to an agreement. Uh, they've made promises to one another. There are stipulations. And if everyone keeps their part of the covenant, then, then everybody benefits. That's the idea in a covenant. Uh, and that's what's happening in Scripture with respect to the covenants. Of course, these covenants in Scripture, particularly the Abrahamic covenant and its expression today in the New Covenant, uh, all part of the covenant of grace, these covenants are, are existential, right? Uh, these are covenants together with the covenant of works that incorporate every single human being who ever has or will live. All of us belong right now either to the covenant of works or the covenant of grace. Uh, And so, what is the nature of these covenants? In the covenant of works, we must provide perfect righteousness ourselves. And in fact, the bad news is it's too late. Uh, we've already failed in that covenant, and that covenant had curses for those who fail. And because Adam failed, and because he was our representative, all of us have failed, all of us are under the curse, 
None of us is capable of providing the righteousness that the covenant of works requires. So if you are not in Christ, you are in Adam. Every single human being in all of history is either in Adam or in Christ. And if in Adam, you are under the curse and incapable of providing the righteousness that that covenant requires. If you are in Christ, in the covenant of grace, Christ has provided the righteousness that's required and has put away the curse by receiving it on himself so that God is both just and the justifier, right? So this covenant describes the relationship. If we are in the covenant of grace, we are in Christ and we have fellowship with God and all of the promises of God are yes and amen to us in Christ Jesus. On the day of God's final judgment, we will all be delivered from that judgment in Christ. Uh, And now, as we await that judgment, God has already brought us to life spiritually. The, The Spirit of God lives in us and sanctifies us and is at work preparing us for the day that Christ will come again. And, and of all the, the works that he does in preparing us, the fundamental are the works of faith and repentance. These are the works that the Spirit is, is doing in us, making us more and more like Christ. So, uh, a covenant requires someone to guarantee it, right? Somebody, to, somebody who can and will ensure that the terms are met. And in the covenant of grace, he's talking about a better covenant here. Uh, Temporally, we could say that he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. But in in a greater sense, he's talking about the covenant of grace. Jesus is the one who ensures that all the terms of the covenant of grace will be met. And and because Jesus is the one who ensures it, and we know that he is perfect. We know that he is the son of God and that he's been appointed by God to this purpose. We know he cannot and will not fail to guarantee this covenant. You see hints of this already in the Abrahamic covenant when that covenant is cut. You've probably heard us talk about it before. In, the, in Genesis, a lot of the imagery that you get is imagery that's sort of common to the ancient Near East, to that time and place. God will will pick something up culturally and use that something for his purposes. And so when he makes covenant with Abraham, he engages in a uh, a ceremony that we find described elsewhere uh, in ancient Near Eastern literature, where the two parties would take animals and they would cut them in half uh, and lay those parts across from one another and with those parts create a path between them. And the two parties would walk through the parts. You can imagine the bloody mess it would have been. Uh, and, you know, we, we talk about sacraments and how they're sensible signs, right? You can smell and taste and touch and see and hear. Uh, all of the senses would have been alive as you walk through the, the nasty, uh, you know, results. of. This is why it's called cutting a covenant. A covenant is cut in Scripture. Why? Because you cut these animals down the middle, lay them apart from one another, and walk between them. Why? What's the point in doing that? The point in doing that is that the two parties in walking between these animals are saying, if I break the covenant, let this be done to me. 
This is the threat of breaking the covenant. But you remember this little detail from the Abrahamic covenant. Who walks between the pieces? God. God and God alone. But it's even more explicit than that. Because though God walks through the parts alone, he walks through as two symbols. Right? God himself will keep both parts of the covenant. His promises to us as God and our promises to him as his people. He keeps those promises. This is Jesus Christ living a perfectly righteous life and in that righteousness, that perfection, being credited to us who trust in him. So, all of that is background for what's happening here as the author of Hebrews uh, argues that Christ is a better uh, high priest he guarantees a better covenant, and that's going to come in, in chapter 8 as we open that up next time. I'm out of town next week. Yes? Just going to add what's like a mind-blowing note to me in all this and talking about being in Adam versus in Christ, covenant of works, covenant of grace. We have every reason to believe that Adam himself is in Christ. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Every, every indication is that Adam is a part of the covenant of grace. Um. Okay, I'm not going to be here next week. I'm out of town for a wedding. Uh, Pastor Nathan's back next week from sabbatical, and so he'll be here on Sunday morning and evening. Uh, His dad, Joel, who many of you know is also a pastor in the PCA, is going to preach our morning and evening services next week, and then uh, I'll be back the Sunday after that. What's that? Um, I don't know. What did we decide? Joel's teaching Sunday school, too? (laughs) Oh, he's going to talk about Eli. That's easy. He can do that standing on his head. So, yeah, that's, it didn't even occur to me. We should probably cover Sunday school. Um, <clears throat> okay, so that's what's happening over the next couple of weeks. Very thankful that Joel is willing and able. He's only just back from Uganda, and his, his return trip was, uh, was not without trouble. And so uh, hopefully he will be well-rested and recovered from that uh, by the time he's with us next Sunday. So, um, and then... Uh, I'll be back the Sunday after that, and we'll pick up again in Hebrews that Sunday. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, uh, who is a perfect high priest and will be perfect forever as our high priest, who continually lives to make intercession for us, uh, whose work is completely acceptable to you and sufficient. We give thanks and praise for this. And pray that as we're tempted perhaps to reach out to other things in order to find our hope, in order to find fulfillment, uh, that, Father, we would be reminded constantly that there is nothing greater and that it is Jesus Christ and him alone or nothing. And so we pray that you would grant that we would cling to Christ and repent of our sins until he returns. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.